All right, everybody. How is everybody doing? Hope everybody's having a good evening. How is everybody doing today? I know that uh, Gabe's a little shook up, and uh, many prayers for you. Sorry to hear about your uh, your accident. I hope everything's okay for you. And uh, also, uh, prayers for Raina if she's out there listening. I just want to let you know that we are all thinking of you. It's not just me and Angie, but there are lots of believers out there that are thinking about you. Okay? All right. So I hope you all are having a good day. It's been a good day here in St. Louis. It's been a wintry week here, though. Lots of snow and ice and winter weather. Okay? But I recently got a new parka. It goes all the way down to my knees, okay? So it's been warm for me, even with all that cold, icy stuff on the ground. And uh, it's not the best-looking coat, but I've, as, I've got, as I've aged, as I've gotten older, i found that I care more for function over form. <laughs> all right. So anyway, welcome to the Pristine Grace podcast. Today is December 19th, 2019. It's 6.30 p.m. here in Missouri, and I am your host, Brandon Kraft. Alright, this video and audio is being streamed into Facebook, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. Alright, so for those who don't know or didn't weren't able to catch it, uh, this Sunday, this past Sunday, Gabriel Gonzalez continued his preaching on our Sermon Audio page, and uh, it was a rocky start. But uh, he eventually got it going. So, and I think it was a great start to what is hopefully a lot of good expository preaching from him on our website. He's been doing it for a little while now, but it's the first time he's actually been on our website. So it was pretty exciting. And uh, I got to observe it uh, while I was driving back from uh, my, my trip down to uh, Jackson, Missouri. And uh, Gabriel's currently working through the Book of Romans. And I expect many more good things from him. I also found out there is going to be another conference coming up, this time in Albany, Georgia, at the Eager Avenue Grace Church. So uh, I hear it's slated for the weekend of March 22nd. And I've been to one of their conferences before. It's been a long time, uh, going back almost 13 years now. But it was a good time for me, and it was wonderful. And this time I hear that Gary Shepard and Richard Warmack are scheduled to speak. So I'm looking forward to being there for that, and then going, hopefully, that over to the uh, conference in Ruston, Louisiana, the next month, either April or May. All right, so uh, last week's message I gave was on true evangelism, and we are going to stick close to this theme again today. All right. I've received some possible positive feedback, and uh, that message has already jumped to uh, my third most popular message on Sermon Audio. So I uh, struck a chord there. But before I get into today's into today's message, I just like to address something that's been bothering me for a little while now. This uh, highly polemical rhetoric that I've been observing in Free Grace circles, certain free grace circles, that is. And that's the constant drumbeat of, that's a false doctrine. This is a false doctrine. These people are bad. That preacher is a heretic, etc., etc., etc. It goes on and on and on and on and on. 
mainly online only, all right? But pe people are continually talking about dead teachers and theologians of the past, and there is constant judging going on, all right? Now, I, I look, I believe in judging things in light of the gospel, all right? I, I believe in pointing out error. I believe in standing up for what is right and true. It's our calling as believers, as teachers and preachers of the gospel. But when your entire ministry is polemics or contentious rhetoric, as far as I'm concerned, you've, you, you've crossed into error. All right? And for those who don't know what polemics are, here's a simple definition. And I pulled this off the web. I searched Google and I found the first uh, definition or that came to me. Actually, I searched DuckDuckGo because I don't endorse Google anymore. <laughs> okay, so a polemic is contentious rhetoric that is intended to support a specific position by aggressive claims and undermining of the opposing position. Polemics are mostly seen in arguments about controversial topics. The practice of such argumentation is called polemics. A person who writes polemics or speech, speaks polemically is called a polemicist. All right? And that's what I'm seeing today. That's, that's what I'm seeing today coming out of certain sovereign grace, free grace teachers and folks on Facebook. And I'm not going to name names on this podcast, but to me it is very disheartening. Yeah, the Apostle Paul named names, and he pointed out error. He was not shy, and neither should we. But he wasn't on it constantly. All right? And there are some people that are seemingly at this constantly, constantly railing on the opposition. Arminianism is a false gospel, they say. Free willism is false, they say. And I agree with them. All right? However, they go on and on and on. And then they go looking for so-called compromisers. And then they start railing on them. And then they go looking for people that aren't joining them in their railings upon the compromisers. And they start calling those people compromisers. And then railing on people who are defending the so-called compromisers who compromised with the really bad compromisers. And then they have factions. Teams of people running with their agenda. All right, And in the middle of all this, Christ is ignored or lost. The religion is, their religion is not centered on Christ and his redemption of his people, but it's focused on judging. All right? And I agree that we are to judge righteously, to rightly point out things that are truth and things that are false. But if it has become the focus of your ministry or congregation or even your Facebook wall, you are in error and in many cases not helping anybody. You may very well come across as a divider of the brethren, as a clanging symbol. Your gospel is no longer the good news of salvation, but one of making the right judgment. You, you hunt for false gospels, and your hunt for them becomes a false gospel in and of itself. And the gospel is not confess with your mouth that Arminians and tolerant Calvinists are lost. Okay? Example. R.C. Sproul was a very popular Calvinistic theologian that passed recently within the last few years. Okay, And a few years ago, there was some speculation as to where he is right now, whether he is in heaven or hell. All right? And some of these false gospel hunters on Facebook accuse my friend Renat 
of being a false gospelist himself because he wouldn't even speculate on Mr. Sproul's whereabouts because Mr. Sproul allegedly taught some erroneous things that went against the gospel. Really? Are you kidding me? Are we really going to divide as brethren over a stupid issue like this? None of the folks I know had any personal relationship with Mr. Sproul, Dr. Sproul. Where does the scripture even tell us to even speculate about the eternal destiny of someone or something we should argue with the brethren over? That's not even a question we should even entertain. And, you know, I got to say to all you folks that are railing on Renato on this, shame on you for even going there. All right? Shame on you for making this an issue and just shame, or as Greta Thunberg would say, how dare you? All right? Your witch hunts and endless polemics are not gospel honoring. Your public shaming of our brethren who won't muddy themselves with your speculations is what is shameful and it's prideful. And your constant polemics distort the truth of salvation in Christ. All right? People can't hear you. They can't hear what you're speaking about because you are being controversial seemingly for the, the sake of being controversial. All right, The gospel in and of itself is the controversy. It doesn't need any added controversy to go with it. Christ and his gospel is the rock of offense. This is what divides people. Additional controversy is not necessary. All right, and I prepared that little thing there. I had just had to get that off my chest, and that's all I really got to say about that. All right, so I guess I kind of started this off with a bang. But it's been burdensome to me, and I just had to get it off my chest, okay? So, but I absolutely despise seeing non-gospel disputes take center stage like this. It takes center stage like this amongst the brethren, okay? It's wrong, and it needs to stop. So thank you for allowing me to speak freely on it. If you disagree with me, please feel free to message me, okay? Now, this, I'm sure somebody out there is probably going to take this message and uh, dissect it and transcribe it and make a blog about it and talk about how awful I am. But, you know, that's I don't understand why people go to these, these links, okay? Anyway... Let's get back to the main topic for today, the main subject, all right? And today, we're going to talk about the so-called modern question, all right? And it's really not all that modern, but that's what they were calling it back in the 19th century, all right? And the modern question, as it has been called, is simply this, is faith a duty? Is faith a duty? I'm not talking duty, like doggy duty, but I'm talking duty, okay, obligation, all right? And have you, so have you ever thought about it? Do, do you believe it is your duty or obligation to savingly believe the gospel? Do you believe it is your duty for everyone to savingly believe the gospel? Is it your neighbor's duty to believe the gospel? Is it a duty for everyone to turn from works righteousness to resting in the work of Christ? Well, that's a question I'm going to attempt to address today. All right, It's a question that has had a heated response in the past and 
it still it still gets a heated response today, depending on your point of view, depending on your perspective. This is the big modern question of the 19th century preachers. All right, and there is a majority opinion on this question, as well as a minority opinion. All right, folks really aren't that evenly divided on the answer. All right, but I I'm going to say right now I stand pretty much with a minority on this, okay? And because of that, I draw the charge of so-called hyper-Calvinism from those who disagree with me, all right? So-called hyper-Calvinism is a scary word people like to throw around, but it's basically like me, it's like, it's like calling me the boogeyman as far as I'm concerned. It's just words, all right? So, last week my message was on evangelism and how the gospel was good news for the elect. If you haven't watched or listened to that message, I, I would recommend that you check it out. But anyway, in that message, I talked about how the gospel came as glad tidings to people, as good news to his sheep. And when they hear this news, they rejoice. All right, The gospel is for burdened sinners who desperately need forgiveness from their sins. Okay, so what is faith? All right, what is faith, and is it a duty? Those are those are important questions we need to ask ourselves. So if you wouldn't mind, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Galatians, okay? And I've already turned there because I've got it right up on my screen, but I'm going to give you time to go there in your Bible or in your digital e-sort. So let's go to Galatians chapter 5. All right, Galatians 5, starting in verse 22. Okay, Galatians 5, starting in verse 22. And I'm going to read through verse 23 here. Alright. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Do you notice something in that passage? What the fruits of the Spirit are? Love, joy, and peace. All right. All good gifts that the Spirit produces in us. Okay. In us as believers. All right. But another one there listed is faith. A fruit of the Spirit is faith. Okay? So turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm just going to read verse 8 here. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Alright? It is the gift. We are saved through faith, and that this faith is a gift of God. Alright? It's a gift. So here we have faith defined as a fruit of the Spirit. It is also defined here as a gift. Alright? And it's through this faith that God's people have peace. We have been reconciled to God, and we rejoice that God is... That God is large, that He is sovereign over everything, that He's sovereign all thing over all things in heaven and and on this earth. 
and we rejoice through faith that he reigns supreme over everybody, all nations, and all the events of this, this fallen world, all right, and over the events of heaven. Okay, and we rejoice through faith that he has even numbered us, that he's even numbered the very hairs on our head, all right? And it's through this gift, this gift of faith, that we are led to trust only in Christ for our eternal salvation, for the salvation of all of our brothers and sisters that Christ has redeemed, all right? Our faith is not in, in our faith. Our faith is not in anything that we do. Our faith is not in anybody other than Christ, all right? And the more we learn of God by faith, the more confident that we become to resign our lives entirely to Him. All right? Additionally, although we have this gift, this gift of faith, we still have trials and tribulations in this world. All right? We still sin. We also have doubts and fears. I still have doubts and fears. And my faith is often tried, as I'm sure it is for you. All right? But it is through these trials that we understand our faith does persevere, all right? After all that I've been through, after all that you've been through, our faith has persevered, and it's been through a lot. We've been through a lot of trials and tribulations, and that's going to be true for almost every believer, any believer that lives a long period of time, all right? Okay, and also one of the things that we learn through experience is that we have no control over our faith, all right? We can't willfully make our faith any bigger than it is, all right? We have no control over it, but our faith actually has power over us, all right? And so, having learned all of this through Bible study and by experience, you know, how could anybody say that faith is a duty? Oh, is it our duty to have a gift? No. No, I, I say no. It's Faith is not a duty. It's a blessing. Yet the majority will answer the question in the affirmative. They will say that, yes, faith is a duty. That it is our duty to savingly believe the gospel and to have all of its blessings. All right? And, and if you understand the question that way, you have a misunderstanding of faith, in my opinion. You have a misunderstanding of salvation, because salvation is entirely by grace, and it's by faith, not of works. So if you believe that faith is a duty, how can you even agree with these passages where it speaks of faith as a gift? Faith is not a work that we perform, all right? And I do agree that there is duty that men have, all right? Men are obligated to love God, all right, to bow before him in reverence and worship, Men are obligated to obey God's commandments, and those who aren't in Christ will one day be held to account for their numerous violations of, of God's law, all right? But are men obligated to believe that God loves them and Christ is atoned for their sins? Are those for whom Christ did not die obligated to believe something is true for them that simply isn't? It seems crazy. To me to think that they are obligated to believe a lie. But why? Why do people insist on the doctrine of duty faith? Why do people believe it is necessary to preach that faith in Christ is an obligation? 
And I'll tell you why. I think it's because it goes hand in hand with their understanding of evangelism. All right, what I preached about last week. Evangelism is simply preaching the good news to people, though. We preach the gospel to those the Lord leads to us in providence. We preach to those who are willing to listen to us. But we're not necessarily standing on a street corner trying to make converts. We're not trying to cajole people into confessions. Why? Because it's God who does the converting. It's God who opens hearts to understand and believe the gospel. Remember how we talked about Lydia last week? All right? God opened her heart to believe. All right? And the gospel is good news that comes as glad tidings, okay, to Christ's sheep. All right? And those who aren't Christ's sheep, well, it's just a story to them, one that doesn't even interest them. And if it does, it's really only a temporal fascination, an intellectual plaything. All right? And I have known people that have believed the gospel, supposedly, for a season. It was just... You know, I've seen them seem like solid believers, but they they left the gospel. They left it because it was only a temporal thing for them. It was a temporal fascination, all right? But the reason folks really need faith to be a duty, they need it because it's useful in making converts. That's why you hear this. Well, that's why you used to hear about it so much. You don't hear it too much today. All right, but if, if you can stand on the corner and yell, "Hey, you be, you better believe this, because if you don't, you're going to hell." Well, it gets a lot of people into the kingdom. They think they see faith as the entrance into the kingdom, rather than the evidence of citizenship. All right, because uh, you see, those of us who believe, we believe because we were made to be citizens of God's kingdom. Christ lived and died for us, all right, for us only. And we were all appointed to come to faith at the time he determined for us to believe. Our faith is evidence that Christ has made satisfaction for us. It's assurance that we are one of his people. So a better way of asking the, the modern question, the question is, is, might be, are we duty-bound to be one of Christ's sheep? That's a silly question, isn't it? Are we duty-bound to be one of the people that Christ died for? Seems pretty silly. All right, It doesn't make any sense to me. Are we duty-bound to have assurance that Christ died for us? Are we duty-bound to believe the gospel? It's really all the same question, just phrased a different way. All right, And that really goes to show just how different we are from the rest of the world that claims to be Christian. We thank the Lord for our faith. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And further on down in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it is said that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the evidence. All right, Our faith is evidence of salvation, our redemption in Christ. It's not the means by which we procure our eternal salvation in the sight of God. It's a gift. It's a gift to see that we are one of his sheep. That's what faith is. All right? And I think duty faith is, is a serious error. In my opinion, it is. All right? It is, an, it is the doctrine 
that leads one away from the gospel of free and sovereign grace all the way down into free willism. All right? Because it turns faith into a work that one must perform in order to be saved. I, I would even call it free willism repackaged. All right? And a lot of so-called so Calvinists are in support of duty faith. Most Calvinistic churches are in favor of the doctrine. They probably wouldn't have a statement on it, though. This debate has already occurred. It occurred way back in the days of Spurgeon, and it's pretty much considered fully settled now in most of the most of the Calvinistic churches. With most of them, most of the Calvinistic churches and institutions firmly embracing it. Free willers, free willers, they just you know that's they don't even go that far. It's just, but uh, it's just assumed there. All right. Duty faith is assumed in the common understanding of what the gospel is in all of these places. And that is they view salvation primarily in conversion and not in Christ's work of redemption. All right? They teach that salvation is sufficient for all, all right? but efficient for only the elect. All right? And in my opinion, that's one step away from free willism, all right? which teaches that election is based on God's so-called telescope of time, seeing those who will exercise their acts of volition. All right? The idea is that God saw who would exercise faith, and therefore he elected them based on this decision. All right? How is duty faith really any different than free willism? So what if God unconditionally elects people to salvation if salvation is based on exercising an act of duty? All right? It still works righteousness. It's still free willism, just repackaged with some highfalutin theology named after a man called John Calvin to make it sound better. All right. I would say that the doctrine of duty faith is the doctrine that binds free willers and many Calvinists together. All right. Their understanding of the gospel is essentially the same. Only the backstory is different. And that's why you see a lot of these Calvinists go to bat for free willers. All right. Because it's the same thing. Evangelism means the same thing to them. And I've known many Calvinists that work just as hard as free willers at trying to make converts, doing everything they can to entice people into believing, into becoming a Christian. All right. They have all kinds of programs. They hand out popcorn and candy. All right. They engage people in flashy church services. They'll even spend lots of money on youth pastors and recreational youth programs. And they're zealous, but their efforts are misplaced. Okay. You can't you can't tell the difference between a, a free willer church and a and a duty faith church sometimes. All right. You got to go to the back of the church and maybe, or back to the church offices and ask for their statement of faith, and you'll see something different than what you might have expected. All right. But as we've learned, salvation is entirely by grace. No amount of pleading is going to make people believe. All right. It is the Lord that opens hearts and prepares His people for gospel conversion. But if you view faith, you view, if you view faith as a duty, as a work that must be performed in order to be saved in the eyes of God, you might think differently. All right, Charles Haddon Spurgeon.
Charles Spurgeon is a darling of many Sovereign Grace believers. He is probably the most widely quoted 19th century preacher, and many things, many, many things he has said are excellent, all right? I love a lot, I love a lot of what he's written and spoken, but he is wrong on a lot of stuff too, as many preachers can be. And I'd say this is mainly because of his adherence to duty faith. His preaching of duty faith, in my opinion, is what led to the downfall of the Baptist churches. For those of you who don't know this, the majority of Baptist churches here and abroad were once Calvinistic. All right, They mostly were all sovereign grace back in the 19th century. But with duty faith preaching, free willism eventually caught hold. And now they're almost all universally free will churches today. Go look at those Southern Baptist churches. they got a lot of them. A lot of them that have been around a long time. Okay? If you study the history, you'll find out that most all, all of them that are free willers today, if they have any significant history, they go back to the 19th century. They were once Calvinistic. All right? But they, they turned from... They started with the doctrine of duty faith, and they worked their way all the way down to free willism. All right. So because of Spurgeon's embracement of duty faith, you're not going to find a lot of material of his on my website, pristinegrace.org. All right. I don't like to quote from him a lot, and I don't like to lend a lot of credibility to him or his ministry. Yeah, he said many good things, you know, but there's a lot that I just don't like. Okay, so in my mind and in my observations of his preaching, he appears to have been double-minded and paradoxical. So, as far as I can tell about the man, he spoke out of both sides of the same mouth. He spoke out of both sides of his mouth. And so, but if you're a fan of Spurgeon, please bear with me. I'm, I don't mean to rail on him. I'm not, he's not really here to defend himself. He, but he's often quoted and admired, and and I'm going to try to quote from him here so that you can understand what I'm talking about. And I'm not here to make a, a judgment of Spurgeon either. You can take any theologian of the past and find things where they spoke in error, okay? And people also change as they mature, sometimes for the worse. But you can probably take the words of any preacher, and if he's been around long enough, use his own words against him. All right, and this is certainly true in my case as well. We're all fallible, and we all fall way short of the high standard of gospel perfection. All right, through strict and harsh judgment of words and misdeeds, I can show you an unbeliever if you examine any single person's preaching and doctrine. But that's not what we are called to do. We are called to examine way and judge that which is right and that which is wrong. And that's all I'm trying to do right here. Okay? So, Spurgeon replaced uh, the gospel stalwart John Gill at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. As you all know, John Gill was an excellent preacher of the gospel, probably my favorite from that time period. You know, right, he's right up there with Top Lady and, and uh, what's his name, William Gadsby, all right? And, and his preaching was one of free grace. I also like William Bryan as well, 
or John Bryan, okay? But John Gill spoke of free grace, not duty, all right? So I'm going to contrast the two speakers, and hopefully you'll see what I'm talking about, all right? And I'm sorry, this has gone for 30 minutes now, but I'm going to try to wrap it up here soon. So I want you to listen to the the duty free the duty faith preaching in Spurgeon's words, and uh, John Gill's hypothetical response. All right. So I took these quotes from Spurgeon's 1864 sermon. 1864. Yeah, we're gonna go back to the Civil War. What God cannot do, and from John Gill's Body of Doctrine, Doctrinal Divinity and Sermon 95, an answer to Birmingham. Dialogue writer and the article Dr. Gill and Mr. Bryan vindicated from the charge of error and mistake with respect to faith in Christ. All right, and you should be able to find all these in the book section. Well, you can't find Spurgeon stuff on our website, but you can find John Gill stuff. You can find this in the book section on Pristine Grace. All right, so here's Charles Spurgeon speaking. Brethren, if it be so that God cannot lie, then it must be the natural duty of all his creatures to believe him. I cannot resist that conclusion. It seems to me to be as clear as noonday that it is every man's duty to believe truth, and that if God must speak and act truth, and truth only, it is the duty of all intelligent creatures to believe him. Here is John Gill's response, who actually lived before Spurgeon. The law is not of faith, so faith is not of the law. There is a faith indeed which the law requires and obliges to, namely faith and trust in God as the God of nature and providence. For as both the law of nature and the law of Moses show there is a God and who is to be worshipped, they both require a belief of him and trust and confidence in him, which is one part of the worship of him enjoined therein. Moreover, the law obliges men to give credit to any revelation of the mind and will of God he has made, or should think fit to make unto them at any time. Spurgeon, here is duty faith again, which some are railing at, but how can they get away from it, and yet believe that God cannot lie? I cannot understand. If it be not my duty to believe in God, then it is no sin for me to call God a liar. Will anyone subscribe to that, that God is a liar? I think not. And... If to think God to be a liar would be a most atrocious piece of blasphemy, then it can only be so on the ground that it is the natural and incumbent duty of every creature understanding the truthfulness of God to believe in God. John Gill says, As is the revelation which is made to men, such is the faith which is required of them. If there is no revelation made unto them, no faith is required of them. And unbelief or want of faith in Christ will not be their damning sin, as is the case of heathens. For how shall they believe in him who they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? No, they will be condemned not for their want of faith in Christ, or his gospel, which they never heard of, but for their sins committed against the law in light of nature. As many have sinned without law shall perish without law. If a revelation is made, this is either external or internal. If only an external revelation is made, the faith required is an assent unto it, and a reception of it. And such who do not attend to the evidence it brings with it, or reject and despise it, shall be damned. 
But if besides the external revelation, an internal revelation is made by the spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of Christ, or if God by his word calls men effectually by his grace and reveals his Son in them as well as to them, this kind of revelation comes with such power and influence upon the mind as certainly to produce a true and living faith in the soul, which infallibly, infallibly issues in eternal life and happiness, and of such persons, and of such only, acts of special faith in Christ are required. Charles Spurgeon replies, If God has set forth the Lord Jesus Christ as a propitiation for sin, and has told me to trust Christ, it is my duty to trust Christ, because God cannot lie, and though my sinful heart will never believe in Christ as a matter of duty, but only through the work of the Holy Spirit, yet faith does not cease to be a duty. Whenever I am unbelieving and have doubts concerning God, however moral my outward life may be, I am living in daily sin. I am perpetuating a sin against the first principles of morality. If I doubt God, as far as I am able to able, I rob him of his honor and stab him in the vital point of his glory. I am in fact living an open traitor and sworn rebel against God, upon whom I heap the daily insult of daring to doubt him. And John Gill's response, As for special faith in Christ as a Savior, or believing in him to the saving of the soul, this the law knows nothing of, nor does it make it known. This kind of faith neither comes by the ministration of it, nor does it direct to Christ the object of it, nor give any encouragement to believe in him on the account of the above account, but is a blessing of the covenant of grace, which flows from electing love, is a gift of God's free grace, the operation of the Spirit of God, comes by the hearing of faith, or the word of faith as a means, that is, the gospel, for which reason, among others, the gospel is so called, and it is that which points out Christ, the object of faith, and directs and encourages sensible sinners under a divine influence to exercise it on him. Its language is, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that sh thou shalt be saved. Alright. And that's all I have for the quotes from those two today. Alright, I apologize it went a little long. But I want you to think about the two styles of preaching there. Now, if you guys want these quotes, I can send them to you. Alright. But uh, I want you to notice that no, that one was more focused on what a person does. Okay, that faith is seen as an act of volition and not a gift. All right, but that the response from the response was to focus on what God what God does. What okay, that's what John Gill emphasized. He focused on what God does. One is really promoting a condition that must be fulfilled whereas one is promoting the free grace of God. Okay, and you, you, the uh, duty-faith error is very subtle, all right? It's, it's easy for a new believer to be sucked into it, okay? Because they, they go with obligation and the way it's phrased, all right? But these are really two different understandings of salvation. Okay, and when one starts to embrace faith as a duty, all right, it's really embracing a little leaven that ultimately will leaven the whole loaf, all right. And uh, I think that's about all I have to talk about today.
So, but before I end today's message, I want to leave you with this question. Is faith a duty? That's a question you'll eventually have to answer. All right. Through, you may have to struggle with the scriptures for a little bit. You'll have to study. But I think it's one that I would encourage you, if you don't know the answer to that, to uh, dig in. All right. If it's not if it's not already been answered for you, dig in and uh, see what you find. For me, the answer is a resounding no. Okay. Faith is a blessing of grace. It is a gift, not a work. All right. I I hope you all have a great evening. I hope to see you next week, Lord willing. I'm not sure. If I'm going to have a, a live stream next week or not, I, I've got a lot of family time coming up, so I may not have time to prepare. So uh, I'll, I'll let you know. If it, if it doesn't happen, I'll post about it. But I'll, also, if you're one of those guys who enjoys f holidays with family and friends, I, I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas with your family and friends. All right. And if you're one who doesn't observe Christmas, well, gospel blessings to you, okay, to you too. All right, so grace and peace, everybody, and uh, have a good evening.